You're listening to Alumni Allowed, a new podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career and the advice they would give current students. This series is sponsored by the Office of Career Planning and Professional Development at the Graduate Center. In this episode of Alumni Allowed, I speak with Michelle Miller-Fisher. In 2018, she will be assistant curator in the Department of European Decorative Art and Design at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. When we spoke in the fall of 2017, she was a curatorial assistant at New York's Museum of Modern Art. She's currently finishing up her PhD in the Graduate Center's Art History Program. In this conversation, Michelle talks about the benefits of working outside academia while you're earning your PhD, how being a curator allows her to satisfy her passions for blending scholarship with innovative forms of public engagement, and the myriad reasons why cultivating support groups for research and professional development with your peers at the Graduate Center can help you adapt to the changing landscapes of modern work. This interview was conducted by myself, Anders Wallace, PhD candidate in the Anthropology Program at the GC. So what's your name and what do you do for a living? So my name is Michelle Miller-Fisher and I'm a curatorial assistant at the Museum of Modern Art in the Architecture and Design Department um, and I also teach in several different places as well depending on the semester. Last semester I taught as part of the Bard Prison Initiative. Um, the semester before that and quite a few semesters before that I've taught at Parsons the New School for Design. Wow. Um, I've done a, a co-taught a semester with Paola Antonelli, who's my mentor mm. here at the um, Harvard Graduate School of Design. And so in different places, depending on the topic and the research that we do here, that can be applied to um, a, an elective class somewhere else. That's yeah. really nice that you have that ability to work outside. Is Fun. a lot of work also, I would imagine. Do they give yeah. you a flexibility on this end of MoMA to, no. to do that? No, it's volunteer. <laughs> it's essentially extra. They encourage your professional development, and I'm lucky to work for someone who's really supportive, but it's definitely extra work that you take on. So any, any publications that I do outside of MoMA, teaching any curatorial work I do outside of MoMA is always extra. Mm -hmm. um, and our work day here is pretty intense during exhibition making time. But um, yeah, it's good to keep, I think, a portfolio of different things that you can do mm -hmm. um, because one never knows what your next job will be. Well, that's a really interesting spectrum of things you're involved in. So how did you come to, to do the work you're in now? When I was in undergraduate, I, I went to the University of Glasgow in Scotland, mm -hmm. and I went to do Scottish and English literature. And my third class that you have to take, um, I decided to do history of art. And they were, I found out, tiny classes, like maybe 20 or 30 people, huh. in comparison with about 300 people in the literature class. And huh. so I very quickly realized that this would be a way to do a subject where I think get much keener access to the professors and teachers and mm -hmm. learn in a very intimate way and mm -hmm. I just kind of fell in love with the subject matter. It was unusual, I'd never really translated anything from the visual into text and vice versa which is a lot of what mm -hmm. you do as not historian. Yeah. And so I decided I wanted to do that and I needed to have some work experience. Um, I couldn't afford to do unpaid working experience so I went to our museum on campus and the only thing that was paid was being a security guard in their geological section. Oh, so wow. that's how I started in museums. You needed to get more experience in museums. Yes, totally. To... So I needed professional experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you knew that you wanted to work in a museum context? 
I knew that, that I wanted a job. Mm-hmm. And so I came from a family. My my mom was a single parent, and she, I'm the eldest in my family. Mm-hmm. I hadn't gone to a museum before until I was about 17. And my best friend's mom, who was an artist, took me to go see Patrick Heron at the Tate. And I still mm-hmm. really have a very clear memory of going to see that. Yeah. And I just loved the space. I really yeah. loved the whole environment. It just seemed so beautiful. And so when I went and did this subject, I knew that I wanted a job at the mm-hmm. end of it. And I had no mm-hmm. idea really of the range of jobs that would be possible but I knew that for me at least they centered around objects and Mm. those types of institutions and so yeah I just went to the museum and said what jobs do you have that pay and they said none (laughs) (laughs) security guard security (laughs) guard and so that was my first job and then at the end of my undergrad I applied to about 15 different museum internships that were on the east coast of the states. So I knew I just wanted something very different as an experience and I had a little bit of money saved up from I was a cook through college and so I um, saved that up and I knew I had enough to last me for three months of a summer internship no one wanted me because I had no work experience apart from the Guggenheim who I later found out their first choice of intern had passed and so I was that kind of backup summer candidate so yeah. totally fine Yeah. Um, and I got there and I just loved it. I worked in the education department at the Guggenheim um, as a summer intern in 2005 and I just worked really hard and towards the end of the internship, now looking back on it, maybe it was a bit too much of a ballsy move, but I said, I like it here. Can you give me a job? I had worked hard enough. I really, really, really worked super hard that Mm -hmm. summer, but they actually created a job for me and they got a visa for me, which was, again, um, unusual. Uh, About a year or two later with the economic crash, that would not have happened. Oh, wow. So it was sort of a good moment. So I worked at the Guggenheim for four years and then... um, I came here to interview once for curatorial assistant position, maybe in 2008 or nine. Uh-huh. My mentor at Glasgow, Julia Kinchin, who's a wonderful curator and academic in modern design, mm-hmm. came here, actually. She moved here, moved mm-hmm. to the MoMA for a job, and she's still here. Huh. And she said, oh, I need a curatorial assistant. Come and interview. And so I interviewed, and it was really fun. But at the end, they said, well, you have no American degree. You have no work in curatorial. You've worked in museums, but you really don't have the background that's useful for this. And so they said, you know, you should try and get some curatorial experience and apply again in a couple of years and I realized that I needed not only curatorial experience but also a graduate degree in the states and Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back Mm -hmm. and do doctoral work anyway Mm -hmm. and so that fall I applied to CUNY I only applied to one school actually it was only CUNY that I wanted to go to feel very strongly about state education I applied to CUNY went back to school there um and got various pieces of work experience as I was a graduate teaching fellow. So mm-hmm. I was teaching, but also I worked for Independent Curators International. I worked for the Met Museum for a while. Mm. I tried to find pieces of experience that were related to curatorial work. And then I applied for this job another three times before I got it. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's dedication. <laughs> yeah. And... I knew that I wanted to be here. The next time I applied, I was still in coursework, and they don't like to take people who are still doing classes because mm-hmm. you can't have a full-time job and be able to go to classes mm. as easily. Uh, the next time I applied, I actually applied for a summer internship and I got it, but it was full-time and unpaid and I couldn't do it. So mm-hmm. that's when I ended up working at the Met and I worked in their arms and armor department. Dirk writing and then Hermes. Oh. Um, Dirk was the curator and Hermes was the armor and I worked with them for a year. Um, wow. And I could do that part-time. So that was great. I was able to get curatorial experience with them without uh-huh. having to give up my paid work. Part of this industry is that, or this field, is that you often have to do unpaid work mm-hmm. in order to get 
even close to the paid stuff. For me, that was a huge problem because I could not afford to do that most of the time, and right. I think it's just a problem of the field. It's not equitable. To figure out how to gain experience, and then there's the internship conundrum if it's unpaid, making sacrifices is something that a lot of people can relate to. And then, what's the topic of your dissertation? So I'm looking at architecture and translation. I look at Le Corbusier's Radiant City and Village and Farm Plans from uh-huh. the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. He actually worked on them up until his death in 1965. And I'm interested in how his paper architecture, because most of it was unbuilt, was translated into three very specific places by very unknown, very local, often city council architects in California, in Glasgow, and then in Warsaw at very particular moments in the mid-20th century. Um, And the way that they realized this paper architecture as part of that nascent identity formation as architects and as a kind of a political moment for them. It's fun. It's really, I love it as a topic. Um, It's something that is wonderful to be at MoMA because although I don't directly work on architecture here, being within this department is super helpful in terms of giving me a much, much broader context for the work I do as a, in, in my dissertation. But uh, yeah, it's definitely a slow process while I'm here because my days here can be very, very long. Um, we're in a mm-hmm. nice moment. We just finished an exhibition that went up in early October. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my days are less manic than they were, but often I could be in here at 8.30 or 9 and not leave until 1 or 2 a.m. in the morning. Wow. And it's seven days a week. Is it, that common in, you know, art curating? Um, not always. My husband works at the Met, yeah. and his days are not like that at all. Uh, okay. <laughs> but I think this was an unusually large exhibition that yeah. we worked on, and we have quite a, a dynamic roster of exhibitions that we do here in contemporary design. Right. So um, it's it's usual, I think, for us, but perhaps m- more unusual Um in general, although I think anyone when they're doing an exhibition in the final weeks gets a bit fraught. Mm. So you talked about your academic background and how that really weaves into your your professional life. What's a typical day in the office? Sounds like that mm. might vary. Yeah, it does vary, although um, it's usually, it's fun. So I'm usually up by about 6 or 6.30 and I'll do about a half hour an hour of emailing before I leave from home and when I get here the first thing I often do is go into the gallery if we have a current exhibition on I'll check through the gallery to make sure that no one's moved anything or touched anything the okay. day before. Do a walkthrough. Yeah, so the walkthrough of the gallery to make sure everything's okay. Part of a curator's role is to care for the, the objects in that collection, so mm. that's important to do right at the beginning of the day. And then I'll often have meetings, and so we work with many, many different departments to mm. make things uh, happen within the exhibition. So today, mm. for example, I'll meet with my colleagues in education, and mm. then we actually have a public program. I'll be moderating a discussion with a photographer, kind of a live moderated discussion with... whoever wants to turn up Um, and then um, later on today I'll be working on finishing off parts of our book reprints we have a catalogue for the exhibition Uh that we wrote and it's been very popular so it's going Uh to go into reprint and so I've got to go back through that and look at image permissions any updates that need to be made to the text before it goes back to the printer and then other meetings emails phone calls a lot of chatting with other people of trying to make sure that you're working as part of a larger team Um, often the moments when I need to research whether I'm writing for an article or the exhibition catalogue or the wall text that go up happen in the evening because that's when it's quiet. The yeah. workday is often really busy and kind of populated with different meetings and interactions. Yeah. So what do you enjoy the most about your work? I love a lot of things. I grew up always wanting to read and write and this job allows me to do that. I grew up wanting to be able to interact with the important 
important things of people's everyday worlds and I think design mm. is absolutely part of that whether we realize it or not design yeah. is the ATM interface that you use or it's the subway card yes. interface that you use or it's the uneven distribution of healthcare or yes. education access it's the products that we use in our kitchen drawers every day um, it's wheelchairs it's blood bags it's mm-hmm. blood banks it's, it's various things that really shape our world for better and for worse that to me is hugely interesting because through mm. not only circumscribed scholarship where you can really re- research something carefully and put it out in an academic setting and then that helps sort of change the conversation or add to it there but through exhibitions that are seen by you know thousands if not tens of thousands of people during their run yeah. you can slightly recalibrate or adjust or welcome people into a new view of the world around them and hopefully help them participate kind of actively in the shaping of their world in a different way. And that to me is really exciting. It sounds like a very educational yeah. motivation for you, which I understand completely and I think a lot of academics feel they get through their writing or their teaching practices, right. which you get in a museum context. As you say, the public can come in so you can potentially reach a much broader audience. Totally. What would you say is the most frustrating aspect of your work? It's a really good question. I think I think that access is a frustration because you have this wonderful kind of idealistic idea of what conversations around contemporary design might be yeah. and they work out sometimes beautifully like we had a series of debates around one exhibition design and violence and it mm. was really exciting to have this public format of debate but it can often feel especially at somewhere like MoMA, which is such a magnetic place for the architecture and design community. We're mm-hmm. really lucky that we have people who just engage with us um, mm-hmm. and, and want to come to discussions and want to see exhibitions, that it's a bit like preaching to the choir. I think mm. it's, of, you know, we all are bemoaning at this point in time the polarity of our politics, yeah. widening social gaps, these very kind of macro issues that, you know, whichever part of the political spectrum or social spectrum that you exist on, you're feeling in some way. And I think that the ideal of being able to have conversations that engage those topics is not often matched by the real of what happens in a museum. Mm-hmm. You know, what could happen is so very different sometimes than what actually does happen when you deliver a project. And I think that's often, I think that goes hand in hand in the scale of an institution like this one, both its profile, but also just, you know, it's 800 or so yeah. employees. And I think you can do things with greater agency sometimes at much smaller institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very lucky that we have great funding here, yeah. and so we have often budget to do things, but there's a nimbleness and agility that comes from different setups that sometimes mm-hmm. doesn't manifest here. So you talked about what led you to your to your field of work, and did you ever think of being in academia full-time? It sounds like you knew quite well that you wanted to be engaged in a more public aspect of work. Yeah. I think I do like the idea of at some point being engaged fully in academia. The person whose career I have loved and has been a long-time mentor, apart from my wonderful mentor here, Paula, Uh is Juliet, and I'm lucky to work with both of them here. Juliet Kinchin is our other um, curator of design. And she has gone back and forth between academia. So she was a professor at Glasgow University while I was there. Mm. She was at the V&A before that. Um, she's worked at another museum. She's now back here at MoMA, but she still teaches. Mm-hmm. I think 
I don't know. I like the careers of people who have had feet in different places simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And I think it can really inform your teaching practice to be involved with objects in the museum and vice versa. I think maybe the best setup or the ideal setup for me is probably a university gallery or museum in the mm-hmm. end where you can mm-hmm. have access to both things and you can really kind of synthesize the two. But yeah, mostly, I don't know. I come from a very working class background. I just want a job. <laughs> this was always the job that I wanted, but at the same point in time, I never expected to get it. And yeah. so many other jobs, and still today, many other jobs. I don't know. I was just, I was at home for a long time in November and watching, I was in hospital with a family member and um, watching doctors and nurses do their jobs and just thinking, wow. What they do is so amazing, watching especially nurses in a high dependency unit and thinking, what on earth am I doing with my life? I think everyone has that moment, especially if you have a humanities degree, Mm. where you think you have these wonderful things that you do as a teacher or as a facilitator in other ways, Mm -hmm. um, and then you're brought into contact with someone who like really, really, really does crazily wonderful things. Mm, Um, And so, I don't know, if I won the lottery, I'd just... I'd keep going back to school to do thing after thing after thing. I think maybe many of us would because that's why we enjoy being in higher yeah. education. And so this job and this life is a wonderful one, but it's not the only one that I can think of. The times we live in, you know, work may or yeah. may not be a stable thing and being open-minded about what possibilities are out there totally. while being loyal to what motivates totally. you is, is a nice thing to be able to do. Yeah. How has your PhD benefited you in your career? That's a really good question. I think more than anything in what I do right now in terms of the way I research and read and write, and I know that sounds incredibly basic, but I noticed a shift in those skills as I was going through the classes and exams part of my program. Yeah. Um, after my uh, first exam, and having to really understand the scholarship of my field enough to be able to synthesize it very quickly and form arguments um, Mm -hmm. in a written format there. And then spending six months revising for oral exams and Mm -hmm. figuring out how to present research and really, I don't know, kind of role play, you know, the, the, I guess these moments are kind of um, acting as if, to borrow an Adlerian phrase, yeah. to, to say, you know, I, I can see myself as being part of this community of academics. Yeah. And that, I think, has been really important in terms of then researching and writing. My standards for research and writing, I think, changed, and I, I understood mm-hmm. how to write more clearly, mm-hmm. how to write within and outside of my discipline. And I can notice that um, often when I'm working with other scholars who we perhaps hire to write for our catalogues or Mm. uh, hire for public programs or invite into our research in other ways, Mm. that there is this real difference between having had that training in a strong doctoral program and perhaps not. Some people are just excellent at writing and and Mm. presenting anyway. But I notice that often that skill set is really beautifully honed when you've been in a doctoral program. So what skills do you think that students at the GC could hone for themselves? Are there things that you wish you'd done more of, uh, skills you'd acquired while you were in graduate studies or other things? Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I think the reason I chose to go to the GC is because it has an incredibly inspiring population of students there. My peers there, I learned as much from as the professors, and I love my professors, but I don't know if there's something that people could do more of. I'm always impressed by the level of conceptual and cerebral work that my peers did Mm -hmm. in my program at the extracurricular professional activities that they did Mm -hmm. I think I don't know time to completion is a difficult one and so and I think about that a lot 
And so I wonder if there are ways in which the types of study groups that I had through exams could have been continued as writing partners mm. um, or ways to just will each other into the existence of a finished PhD. Mm. But no, I, the, the, the skill sets, I think the GC and students there are particularly strong because they often have good professional backgrounds. Maintaining one's grasp on that is incredibly important unless you actually you know, see yourself as an absolutely do-or-die only academic career. Then I think it's really important to maintain some kind of professional connection yeah. from the beginning to the end of your program. Professional connections outside of academia. Yeah, to be doing work that <clears throat> is not academic. Mm -hmm. At the very beginning of my program, I set myself a goal to write for a non-academic publication once every two months, so mm. an exhibition review, anything yeah. that would help me write short form and kind of quick and dirty yeah. so that I could understand what it was to have feedback outside of the you know semesterly work that I did for my professors. Yeah. And that was really helpful because I learned that you know academic writing is not the only type of writing, and yeah. sometimes actually you can borrow strategies from non-academic writing to make your academic writing better and stronger and clearer, and it makes you a quicker writer because when you have to write something to deadline and you know you're getting paid for it, or there's a publication that can't go to print until they've got your piece of it, yeah. you have a different sense of responsibility towards getting that done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so that has helped me hugely. So I think keeping some kind of connection alive to your professional field mm. outside of academia is hugely important mm. because, I don't know, it can open more doors, it can make you stronger as, as an academic. I think that's important for all the reasons you raised because there's increasingly these connections between academic totally. world and non-academic and then as far as the job market goes and who knows what, what would happen, but also because, like you said, I think academics learn good teaching and presenting skills, but it comes with the caveat that there's jargon or, or totally. whatnot that academics don't do well at simplifying. So I present at the major conferences in my field. Yeah. Um, CA is one of them. And the research there and the people that I meet are excellent and fantastic. But there are very few people in life that can listen to five 20-minute papers in a row and take in meaningful information from them yeah. and walk away with something that's actually useful for their own research. Mm -hmm. And yet, that's the predominant mode of sharing information professionally in the academic field. I came into design and while I detest TED Talks more than I detest many things, there's a happy medium between these two places where yeah. you don't have to give the superficial, as in the TED Talk, mm -hmm. and you don't have to give the 20-minute paper that no one can quite grasp mm -hmm. because they're fatigued from hearing many before that. I've been able to sort of find this middle ground where there are really meaningful ways to deliver information that take strategies from various different places and enrich the exchange that you're able to have um, and to experiment with those strategies through different types of public program that we do at the museum. And so while there is a real difference between the academic writing and work and, for example, writing in a museum catalog, they, they are different things and I understand that. I don't know. I, I think both can be enriching and so it's kind of useful yeah. to step outside of the academic world as it's useful to step outside of any world and yeah. learn from other places. That's really useful, I think, for anyone who would listen. Is there anything else that, that the I'm conversation is bringing up for you? That you'd like um, I just, I felt really strongly about having this conversation because mm. I have such a passion for the Graduate Center. I feel yeah. really strongly in the landscape of higher education in the States. It's still kind of an anomaly to me that I feel so lucky to have grown up in a country where I had socialized medicine, where I had socialized education. In England. Yeah, in Scotland. in Scotland. I was in Scotland. And so... I think it's really useful to express solidarity with one's peers and to figure out ways in which through sharing knowledge that you have and listening to others, mm -hmm. um, because I know 
it has hugely benefited me mm -hmm. to, to be able to have those types of conversations. Having peer discussions or discussions within, mm -hmm. you know, one peer groups yeah. can be um, good ways of expressing solidarity around difficult job markets and also yeah. thinking about possibilities that might not have occurred to you before in terms of the ways that you can use your skills. That's a wrap for this episode of Alumni Allowed. I want to thank Michelle for taking the time to share her insights on her career journey with us. Remember to stay tuned for new episodes of Season 1 of Alumni Allowed, published every two weeks from our office during the fall and spring semesters. Subscribe on iTunes and you'll automatically be notified of new episodes. Also check out our Facebook and Twitter pages and other resources available on our website at cuny.is careerplan. Thanks for listening and see you next time.